If you love the History Extra podcast, make sure you follow us to keep up to date and get all the latest episodes. Thanks for your support, and I do hope you enjoy this episode. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. He was described as a peace-loving man, a scientist, a man who had had absolutely no power over the army. This was all fabricated. This is all completely untrue. And this post-war myth continues in many places to today. That was Francis Pike talking about the Japanese Emperor Hirohito's role in the Second World War. The black community in this country stood firm and said, we have fought for this country, we have laid down our lives for this country, we are here to stay. And that was Stephen Bourne on Britain's black community at the time of the First World War. You're listening to the History Extra podcast from BBC History magazine. We're the UK's best-selling history magazine, available from all good newsagents or via subscription. Check out our latest subscription deals at historyextra.com forward slash subscribe. The magazine is also now available on many digital devices, including the iPad, iPhone, Kindle, Kindle Fire, Google Play, Kobo and Zinio. Look out for us in your app store or newsstand or find out more at historyextra.com forward slash digital. Welcome to our first podcast of August 2015. I'm Rob Attar, the editor of BBC History magazine. This Sunday, the 9th of August, we'll see the 70th anniversary of the dropping of the atomic bomb on Hiroshima, one of the final acts of the Allied war against Japan. Here in Britain, the Pacific War is often overlooked in favour of events in Europe, even though British forces did, of course, participate in the Far East. Historian Francis Pike is seeking to redress that balance with his book Hirohito's War, The Pacific War, 1941-1945. to And he spoke to our reviews editor, Matt Elton. What arguments can we make for the fact that the Second World War started uh, in July 1937 in China rather than in Poland? Well, if, if you look at the, the reasons as to why America came into, into the war, and after all, it, well, there wouldn't have been a world war unless America had, had actually participated in, in Europe. Uh, and the reason they came into the war was, was because of their insistence that Japan withdraw from China um, and and the the Chinese, the, sorry, the Japanese occupation of, of China started in in, in 1937, um, and after increasing pressure, uh, eventually the the Americans 
imposed a financial freeze on on Japan uh, that forced, first of all, it 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 uh, cut off all oil imports into Japan, and they were 85 to 85 percent dependent on American oil imports, and the result was that Japan had nowhere to go. Either it had to withdraw from China uh, after suffering about a, mis- a million casualties over four years, or it. Or it, or it had to to fight America. It was, it was, it was a pretty bleak choice for the for the for the Japanese. So if it hadn't been for the Japanese invasion of China in 1937, there really wouldn't have been grounds for America to come into the war against against Germany. I think one of the things that's fascinating about the book is taking a non-Western perspective on events that we usually see from only one point of view. What are the main things that we can learn from taking a Japanese perspective? I think one of one of the main reasons to learn is we tend to see the Second World War through the telescope of Europe, uh, which meaning that that we see the Europe as being the major part of the the conflict, and Asia being a a, a little addition. If you look at most histories of the of World War Two, Japan gets a, about ten to twenty ten to twenty percent of the coverage of uh, of, of a book uh, covers covers the Asian War, whereas in fact, in scale, it was at least fifty fifty uh, compared compared to Europe. Uh, and and so, by looking at it from a Japanese or Asian point of view, one can see that, that actually it was a, it was as big a war as the war in Europe, and as consequential in terms of the 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 outcomes and the effects on the on the region. Um, what new impression did you get of Hirohito? Well, some some historians have argued that he was the main driver of military expansion in in Asia. I I see no evidence of of that. Um, in fact, I think he was extremely fearful of of Japan going to war. However, um, when Japan made its conquest, he was pretty happy post the event. Uh, before the event, he was he was extremely cautious. Um, but uh, you know, when the great victories were achieved, he was on his white charger, leading victory parades in front of the imperial palace. And I think he uh, believed in the Japanese Empire every bit as much as as his his uh, his ar- his army. Um, but uh, he was he was just more cautious simply because. He had more to lose, including, as he thought, his head. Mm, yes. Um, I mean, how far can we associate him with specific decisions, or is that kind of a pointless task? It's the this decision making in Japan tends to be much more collective um, than it is in, in in the West, and so it's much harder to identify individual decisions. But on on important occasions when things were very important, he did intervene. He was, um, by the definition of the, the Meiji constitution, he was um, uh, an, an absolute monarch. Now, by convention, he operated within within the bounds of a, a constitutional framework. Uh, but on three very important occasions, he did intervene unilaterally and overruled his, his generals and, and advisors. Which means that he could, if he if if he had wanted to, 
he could have intervened to to try to stop the army um, in it, in its aggressive expansion, but he chose not to. So, I mean, in, in terms of his personality, what did you make of that? His character. I think he was not particularly intelligent. I think he was uh, relatively weak. Uh, he vacillated. Um, and he was not. He was not the the strong leader type that uh, that, for example, Adolf Hitler was. Um, but that doesn't mean to say that uh, his role as a leader was not important. It was important symbolically. Um, and most uh, Japanese soldiers went to their deaths uh, screaming, long live the emperor. Mm. So he was this important figurehead as, as much as anything else. Well, he, he was a god and, and he embodied the spirit of the nation. And as such, he was the essential component. He was the reason for which everybody was fighting. Is it fair to say that we can see Pearl Harbor as guaranteeing a Japanese defeat? No, it's it's. I, I think most historians say that American victory was inevitable, and they say that because the American economy was so much bigger. It was some it was some something like seven times bigger than the Japanese economy uh, at the at the start of the war. However, in history. There have been many occasions when very small nations have defeated very large nations. And the other thing I would I would point to is is that uh, nowhere in history has any country ever taken an army, 1.5 million troops, 5,000 miles across an ocean to defeat and conquer another nation. This was an extraordinary achievement. And nobody could say that this was an inevitable uh, thing that that America would 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 achieve victory in this in in this war, so um, the attack on the attack on Pearl Harbor was did not necessarily mean that that Japan would 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 lose the war. Um, in in fact, it, it could, in my view, it could it could easily have been been won by by Japan if America had not shown an extraordinary will and determination to fight. Mm. And how important was Japan's ability to produce military hardware? The problem for Japan at the, the start of the, the war with America was that the war in China, which had gone on from 1937 to 1941, had not produced the outright victory which the Japanese army had believed it would, it would achieve. The result was that the, the Japanese economy was already running at 100% of capacity in 1941. Whereas, by contrast, the, the American economy was, was, was running at 70% capacity. So it had much more scope for increasing armaments production so, and so on. So the, the Japanese did have a problem in, in, in terms of being able to scale up and match America um, in, in its, indu its industrial military output. Um, are there any uh, kind of characters, any per, you know people in this book who you think have been unsung or underrecognized? Yes, I, th I think always in in wars, the losing side tends to uh, tends to forget its generals, and I think the Pacific War is no is no exception to this. I mean, I think the, one of the finest generals of the war was General Yamashita, who. Uh, defeated the British in, in Malaya and Singapore in a campaign which was absolutely superb. 
uh, and I think he he was genuinely a a great general, and I think that is often often for, forgotten. Um, the other um, people who tend to be forgotten in this in in this war are uh, the the junior uh, American generals who worked for or worked under General MacArthur. Um, in the Pacific War, General MacArthur controlled media completely. His communiques would only talk about himself, and he really wrote out his his, gen- his 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 own generals, and that was because he was he was a complete egomaniac and fantasist. And generals like General Eichelberger, General Kruger, had they been operating in the European theatre, they would be comparable with with General Patton or General Omar Bradley, names that we're very familiar with, because uh, you know they, there wasn't the same degree of control by by MacArthur. But MacArthur uh, completely uh, dominated the the communiques, the media, the media. And um, these generals, who were quite super, superb generals, are, are really written out of the story. Mm, that's really interesting. Um, what was your biggest challenge in writing this book? I think the big, the biggest challenge was to get my head around the geography. I mean, the, it sounds strange, but I mean, I lived in Japan, I lived in China, uh, I lived in India, um, but the the region of the South Pacific is geographically a mystery unless you really embrace it and understand the geography. It's very difficult to understand the progress of the of of, of the war. So that was probably the most difficult thing to. To comprehend it, and also the the extraordinary complex logistical structure required required to 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 fight this war, it was a much more difficult and complex uh, war than the, the the war the war in Europe. Mm. And it's such a vast subject. Was it a challenge fitting that into a single volume as well? Yes, I mean sometimes it's easy to say it would have been easier to to write a a, a two or three thousand page book than a than a thousand page. book page book. Um, it, it is a huge subject. And it's one of the reasons why since World War II, since the Pacific War, there have only been three attempts at writing a comprehensive one-volume history. And all the, 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 the last of these books is over 30 years ago. And, and all three of them are somewhat lacking, in my view, in, 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 in structure and also balance. Um, and I think that's an important uh, the, that's an important thing to understand is that the 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 war in the Pacific is not just about uh, Japan and America. It's also about uh, China, which was the font of the war after all. It's about the British. It's about the Dutch. Uh, it's about the French, uh, and it's about the Australians. And people forget uh, that the Australians played a very significant part in the turnaround battles of the of the Pacific War. And again, because of MacArthur, they were they were largely written out of the story the story. Talking about the Australian side of things, are there any particular episodes that we should focus on much more than we have done? Yes, I mean I I think the the turnaround battles of the Kokoda Trail um, are extraordinarily interesting. And in in some other histories of the Pacific, they're really not mentioned at all. Um, and yet, these were these were the the, the key the key turn turn turnaround battles, and they're extraordinary battles because they were fought over a mountain range over the course of a number of months, 
uh, and the hardship that the Australian troops had to endure was was really quite was quite quite extraordinary. And in fact, I th- I would say the Australians fought in some of the most difficult campaigns of the war simply because they had to fight at a time when when America didn't have or the Allies didn't have complete air control or control at sea either. So they they were relatively unsupported, uh, and they were they were not supported well by uh, a logistical operation, which which again General MacArthur completely uh, screwed up, frank, frankly, um, in a in in terrain which MacArthur just did not understand. He and he never visited the front. He never had any understanding of the conditions in which the Australian troops were fighting. Um, and turning to the Chinese side of the story, are there any individuals there who emerge as particular heroes or particularly strong characters? Well, I, I, I think Chiang Kai-shek, the, the, the leader of the Kuomintang, um, is, is, given, is given a pretty bad press. Uh, and that really results in the post-war period from the feeling that um, he and his armies didn't fight. Well, this is really not true. Um, they had fought Japan to a standstill from 1937 to 1941. Um, and by keep, by staying in the field and keeping uh, the Japanese occupied, they, they, they occupied 1.5 million Japanese soldiers in China uh, who could otherwise have been fighting in you know in the in the islands and the, in the pacific against against the 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 Americans and the Australians so they they played a vital role in, tie, in tying down uh, the Japanese army and they literally were not capable of launching uh, uh, any aggressive campaigns uh, attacking campaigns because they literally did not have the armaments and the logistics and the supplies to to support to support that their economy was had effectively collapsed, uh, but in spite of that, they they stayed in the fi- in the in the field and fought defensively, and that's as much as could have been expected of them. And I think the the post-war criticisms of of Chiang Kai-shek that he stored armaments um, uh, and wasn't prepared to fight are, are completely baseless. We ran a feature in a recent issue about the use of the A bomb. Where do you stand on on that? Well, I, I think no no president of any persuasion could could not have used the at- atom bomb. Um, if you look at the campaigns leading up leading up to the prospective campaign to invade Japan, the campaigns on Iwo Jima and Okinawa, it became clear that Japanese defense was becoming um, ever stronger as as America approached the main Japanese islands. In fact, almost 30% of uh, all American casualties in the Pacific War happened in the last three months of the of the war in the campaigns in Iwo Jima and Okinawa. And the as a result of that, the both the uh, the the um, Joint Chiefs of Staff uh, and the, the the State the State Department uh, and the Secretary for Defense produced estimates which showed that somewhere in the region of between two hundred fifty thousand and 
800,000 Americans would have been killed had they attempted the the conquest, the conventional conquest of Japan by 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 land. The atom bomb um, gave the president the means to to end the war without that enormous cost in American lives. And the, the forecast for the number of American dead in the convention conquest of Japan uh, were, were more than double the number of, of American soldiers killed in, in Europe. Um, so no president, given this, this, the availability of this weapon, no president could not have used it. And how could he have gone back to his own people and said, I've got a weapon that I could have ended the war with and didn't use it, and didn't use it because I thought it was immoral. The American electorate would not have stood for it. It would have been impossible for, for, for Truman to have done anything else. So you think in some sense there's little doubt that he would have ever have not uh, used it? I, I, don't think it was, I don't think it was ever in question. Um, you've got to remember that our moral attitudes towards the the bomb are, are, are built in the post-war knowledge of radiation sickness and the horrors and of, of that and so on. At, at the time, the atom bomb was was a, a big killing weapon, but it, it didn't have the moral connotations that we now we now associate it with. And and um, so, so there just wasn't a there was no moral debate about this. It was just another weapon. Uh, but one that had the possibility to end the war, and in terms of horror, in my view, if you look, if you read my book, you, I think you will see that the Great Tokyo Air Raid, which was a conventional bombing attack using incendiary bombs, was in many ways much more horrific than the than the attack on Hiroshima, and also killed uh, far more people. I mean, a hundred thousand people died in one night in the Great Tokyo Air Raid. Uh, of, of March 1945, compared to the 60,000 who died, who died at Hiroshima. Are there any other aspects of this uh, conflict that have been shaped by our post-war change in attitudes? Do you think? Y- yes, I, I mean, I, I think one one of the, one of the one of the issues has been uh, the issue of the morality of bombing civilian targets, um, and of course, in the post-war period, we've had. Uh, uh, changes to the Hague Conventions, the Geneva Convention, um, that have that have um, put limits on how you can use air power to to win to win a war in a in a legal sense. Um, and of course, in the pre-war period, there were really no such um, moral limits. The only limit was a Hague Con- it was an Article Four in, from. The Hague Convention, 1899, which, which said you couldn't drop projectiles from balloons. Well, you know that that really had was um, was the only thing that had that had ever been pa- passed by 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 an, an international conven- convention. So there were there were no moral limits to to bomb it to bombing as it happened in 1939. But of course we. People take moral issues and they project them backwards, uh, which which a lot of people have done in the post-war period, and have projected backwards a morality in 1939, which 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 just did not exist. 
And on that same sort of point, do you think we should see Hirohito uh, uh, kind of differently in, in light of the fact we shouldn't judge him based on modern standards, I suppose? Well, the issue, the issue of Hirohito is, 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 slight, is slightly different um, in that in the post, after the war, there were war crimes trials. Now, MacArthur judged uh, on the advice of, of his intelligence officer, Colonel, Colonel Willoughby, he judged that he needed Hirohito to maintain civilian order in Japan. Uh, in my view, that was an incorrect judgment. Actually, the Japanese were were really quite defeated and and accepting of the the the, the American occupation. I don't think there, there would have been any civilian unrest had if if Hirohito had been removed. But as a result of of this analysis by uh, by MacArthur, Hirohito was not put on trial, and he was given he and his entire family were given a free pass as far as war crimes were concerned. Well, it's well known that, first of all, it's well known that members of his family were involved in, in, war, in war crimes. Second, secondly, on the basis of the law used it at um, the, 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 the Tokyo tribunals, um, Hirohito should have been A, a witness, and B, he should have been on, tr- on trial too, because as head of the army, and as a man who had, who had the absolute power to stop the war happening, um, he would have had no defence. And I think he, he should have been a class A, a criminal, and he should have been he should have been executed, uh, given that that's what happened to the other the other generals. So there was a there was an elaborate cover up of uh, Hirohito's role. Um, he was dis- described as a peace-loving um, uh, man, a scientist, a man who had ab- absolutely no power over the army. This was all fabricated. This is all completely untrue. Uh, and this post-war myth continues in many places to today. And a lot of Japanese still still believe this, and a lot of people in the West still still, still believe it. Um, and my book is an attempt to partly is to to change this view of of Hirohito's role. I mean, he he may not have been the the uh, instigator of of the of the wars of of expansion by Japan's wars of expansion, but he was ultimately um, the leader of the, the head of the Japanese army, and he was ultimately responsible, and he should have been tried as such. Mm. Um, what was the thing that surprised you most in the course of your research? Um, I think, although I'd heard about the scale, about Japanese atrocities during the Pacific War, it was the scale of the atrocities which absolutely flabbergasted me. Um, I, mean, I don't really want to talk about some of the things that that they did because I find actually too unpleasant to talk about. Um, but but it really it really did stagger me the 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 the, the scale of the of the butchering the the, the cruelty um, imposed by the Japanese not just on captured soldiers but also on the on the civilian pop, pop, populations. If you could um, change people's impressions of this period and this region as a result of reading this book, how would you like to change that? Well, first of all, by reading the book. <laughs> um, 
But what I'd like people to, to take away from this is is the importance of the the, the the war in the Pacific in terms of the history of the twentieth the twentieth century. Um, and not only the history of the 20th century, the history of the 21st century. Um, in a sense, we're, we're going back to a, a period which was familiar in 1850. You've got to remember, in the middle of the 19th century, China was by the world's biggest economy. We've lived, all of us, you, me, and all of our listeners, have lived in a period in which uh, the West and Europe have been dominant players in world history. We're now moving back to a period where China and Asia will be vastly more significant economically and culturally than than the West. There is no question at all that there will be a rebalancing of history over time towards looking at the Second World War as being more important in terms of what happened in, in Asia than what happened in Europe. And so that's, I think, what I would like people to get, to get out of of, of reading this book is to get a sense of the importance of Asian history in the in the 20th century in terms of defining what's happening now and what what will happen over the next hundred years and what will happen in the years um, in the years ahead for uh, our children and grandchildren. That was Francis Pike, Hirohito's War: The Pacific War, 1941 to 1945, is out now in both the UK and the US published by Bloomsbury. And if you'd like to read more about the war in the Pacific, then you may well be interested in our August issue, in which the cover feature debates the rights and wrongs of the bombing of Hiroshima and Nagasaki. Also in this month's magazine, we have articles on Tudor jousting, the murder of Thomas Beckett, witch trials and the aftermath of VE Day. You can get hold of our August issue now in all good news agents and digitally. This episode is brought to you by Indeed. We're driven by the search for better, but when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search match with Indeed. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash History Extra. Just go to Indeed.com slash History Extra right now and support our show by saying you heard about Indeed on this podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Need to hire? You need Indeed. Now it's time for the latest history news with our digital editor, Emma McFarnan. Hiroshima residents are marking 70 years since the US dropped an atomic bomb on the Japanese city. A ceremony attended by Prime Minister Shinzo Abe will be held at Hiroshima's Memorial Park before thousands of lanterns are released on the city's Motoyesu River. On the 6th of August 1945, the US dropped an atomic bomb on Hiroshima that killed tens of thousands of people instantly and many more through the longer-term effects of radiation. Three days later, on the 9th of August, a second bomb targeting Nagasaki killed at least 50,000 people. Visit historyextra.com to read about the science behind the bombings, view pictures of the devastation, and debate whether the attacks were justified. In other news, ancient Egyptian treasures discovered underwater are to be exhibited for the first time. Found in the submerged ruins 
of the cities of Thonis Herculeon and Canopus, the treasures include a finely sculpted statue of a pharaoh and a golden-eyed depiction of the god Osiris, the Guardian reports. The cities sank beneath the waves in the 8th century AD, following cataclysmic natural disasters, including an earthquake and tidal waves. More than 290 artefacts will feature in an exhibition staged at the Arab World Institute in Paris, titled Osiris, Sunken Mysteries of Egypt. Meanwhile, new research suggests ancient Vikings settled in Greenland not for farming, as was previously thought, but for ivory. Scholars have long thought that Vikings flocked to Greenland to set up farms, even though the growing season is short and raising livestock is difficult. But according to Hakai magazine in Canada, archaeologist Tom McGovern is testing a new theory that Vikings settled in Greenland to provide European markets with luxury trade goods such as furs, hides and walrus tusk ivory. McGovern's research suggests walrus hunting, not farming, was the main source of prosperity for many of the estimated 3,000 Vikings who lived in Greenland. A document from 1327, analysed by Christian Keller of Oslo University, showed that a load of walrus ivory equivalent to 520 tusks, was enough to pay six years' worth of Greenland's taxes to their ruler, the King of Norway. Thanks for that, Emma. Before our next interview, here's a reminder that tickets are currently on sale for our 2015 History Weekends that take place in York and Malmesbury from the 25th to 27th of September and the 15th to 18th of October, respectively. We have a great range of speakers that includes Michael Wood, Susanna Lipscomb, Alison Weir, Tom Holland and Helen Castor. Tickets are on sale now and you can get hold of them and find out more details at historyweekend.com. And a number of talks have already sold out, so do make sure to get your tickets soon to avoid disappointment. Our second interview this week is with Stephen Bourne, a historian who specialises in black history. He's written a number of books on the black experience of the Second World War, and more recently has turned his attention to the First World War, with a book entitled Black Poppies. I paid a visit to him in London not long ago to find out more. So we're talking here about your book Black Poppies, and just to clarify for our audience, are you talking here about solely black British people, or are you also including black people from the British Empire? It was my intention to primarily focus on black British people, people born in this country, because it's not generally known that black men from all over the the country, either in the seaports or in villages, would join in British regiments. But I, I did include, I did intend always to include some West Indians and West Africans from, from across the British Empire. I'd have thought some of our listeners would be interested to know that there were you know, lots of black people in Britain in the First World War era, because you, I suppose, tend to think of the Windrush and afterwards. So how many black people would there have been in Britain, do we know, around 1914? It's a very good question, but a very difficult one to answer, because unlike America, we did not include ethnicity on our census. So if you go to the 1911 census, which is just a few years prior to the start of the First World War, you cannot really, unless it actually says African or Trinidadian. But even then, 
a white colonial could be living in those places. But the census, the British census, didn't allow for that. It didn't include ethnicity. So it's almost impossible to come up with with numbers, and I wouldn't even like to, to guess. All I can say is that from the evidence that we have, there were substantial numbers of black people, people of African descent, living in Britain, resident in Britain when the First World War broke out. And um, where would they originally have come from? Would they have come from Africa? Would they have come from the British colonies in the Caribbean? Oh, they would have come from across the empire. My adopted Aunt Esther, for example, her father was a classic example of a, a working-class Guyanese uh, merchant seaman. So he was on the ships, uh, as, as many black men from across the colonies, the African colonies, the West Indies, were. And some of them did decide to settle in our seaports in England and make their homes here. So they would have originated from the British Empire because they saw themselves as British. They were British subjects. And again, and this might be, it might be hard to answer, but do you have an inkling of how many of these black people served in the First World War? Again, no, because the, the ethnicity was never really recorded. There are some examples of black mixed-race soldiers from Britain who joined British regiments, and it might say, in the language they used in those days, half-caste. And other examples we have no mention is made of their ethnicity. So I remember quite recently a young black researcher came to me in great excitement and said, I found hundreds and hundreds of of Jamaicans and, and... in the art, I said, but how do you know if they were black? Well, of course they're black if they're from Jamaica. And I said, well, no, because you had white British people, the, the colonials, living in those places and living in, on those, in those islands in the Caribbean. Unless it specifies it, you can't prove it. So, again, it's very difficult to establish figures, true figures, in the armed services but from the evidence that we've got. And the evidence that's coming to light more and more from photographic evidence, which I use in my talks, even after the book came out, after Black Poppies came out and people began to read it, they would send me, email me pictures of British regiments. There's one Welsh regiment with a black guy standing at the back. It's fascinating. So the evidence is still coming coming through. So during the period of the First World War, how accepted would black people have been both sort of at home in Britain and in the armed forces? Again, there's very little anecdotal evidence of, of how they would have been received. So I, there's more anecdotal evidence of what happened in the Second World War. So one, I'm assuming that in the First World War, by and large, if you had a uniform on, then you were more likely to be accepted in the, by the British public, wherever you may go. But it was really after the war, in 1919, that the returning white servicemen, not all of them, but some of them were very resentful of coming back to a country that they did not consider was fit for heroes. There was mass unemployment, and the, and the black communities and black individuals in this country became the scapegoat. So in the summer of 1919, white servicemen, particularly in the seaports, where black men had married white women and had families and were, were, were establishing themselves in these communities, there was this terrible backlash. So it did turn very nasty. 
But the black community in this country um, stood firm and said, we have fought for this country, we have laid down our lives for this country, we are here to stay. And I really think that was a huge turning point in British history. It's Windrush 1948, which is always seen as the watershed landmark, the turning point. I don't think it was. And I think it was 1919. Were there any of the the black servicemen that you, you wrote about that particularly stood out for you? One of the motivations for doing the book was that in Britain we have this thing of singling out, say, one black person from history and forgetting that they have a context. So Mary Seacole, for, for, for many years now, has been quite rightly um, singled out as an important black woman from Victorian times. But she wasn't the only black woman in Victorian times. But she exists in isolation, and this is what happened with has, has happened with Walter Tull. So Walter Tull, who's claimed to be the first black officer um, in the First World War, British-born as well. It was fascinating over the last sort of 10, 15 years to see the attention being given to him more and more. So there was books aimed at children that can be used in schools. He's not officially on the school curriculum like the African-Americans, Dr Martin Luther King and, and the others. Um, but I want. I said to my publisher, I, it's, and I say it talks, I make people laugh, I say that Walter Tull is up there looking down and saying, I wasn't the only black soldier in the First World War, the only black British soldier. There were others, you know, it's lonely up here, you know, try and find some more and talk about them. And that's what I endeavoured to do, was, was to give him a, a context in that way. Uh, so I wouldn't say that Walter Tull was particularly um, the most impressive to me because I knew about him. It was finding the stories of black soldiers like Frank Dove and Norman Manley, who became the Prime Minister for Jamaica much later, left a partially written uh, autobiography before he died. His wife told him to write it down. But he only got as far as, as far as I'm aware, he only got as far as the First World War. He was an Oxford, an Oxford student in 1914, joined up with his brother. Both of them were from Jamaica. And his brother was tragically killed in action in one of the famous battles. And, but Norman did record his World War I uh, story. And it was published in the Jamaica Journal, so it was accessible. And so he was the one that I knew nothing about when I started, I knew the name, but I didn't know that he served in a, in British regiments. And, and his story is as important as Walter Tolls, and there were others like that. But I think Frank Dove and Norman Manley are the most intriguing. Norman was interested because he, he was an Oxford student. Uh, he didn't graduate, I don't think he graduated, but he left to join up in 1914. And he joined a regiment at Deptford, and he was with what he described as white cockneys, these rough and ready white cockneys. And so he was a bit out of his depth because he's from a more of a sort of middle-class Jamaican sort of background. And they got on like a house on fire. They, they took care of him. They covered for him. If he was sick, they did his guard duty for him. They were real comrades. He absolutely loved them. And he, he didn't like the term darky that they used, but he realised it was a term of affection. It wasn't meant as a racist term. But they were very protective of him and he of them. It was a mutual thing. 
But it, he said the problems came when he was given promotion. And then when he was coming face to face with the white officer class, totally different attitude. They were really virulently racist and horrible to him. In fact, he, he turned down a commission because he preferred to stay with, with the rank and file. Uh, so his experiences were very, very, very interesting. But again, he left a legacy. He left a short but very interesting and detailed uh, memoir fragment of his First World War experiences. Others didn't. Like Frank Dove, I know very little about his World War I service, other than he was, he was again, British-born, of an African father and an English mother, studied at Oxford and, and joined up in 1914. And he was at the Battle of Cambrai, in 1917 and he got the military medal so they they were they were heroes there was another soldier that intrigued me cleo lane the jazz singer uh spoke in her autobiography about her father who was jamaican but joined up during the first world war and served in the first world war and again didn't know very much about his world war one service other than he had a good time and was was accepted in the regiment he joined up but his name, I, I did a bit of digging online and on Ancestry you've got the World War I service records and he's there but under a different name and I only found that out because he used two different names and I knew that he'd used... So when I was checking Alexander Campbell, which is the name that Cleo Lane gives for her father, he's not actually registered in, in the records as Alexander Campbell. It's, I think it's Sylvan, S-Y-L-A-N, Campbell. And his service records all that. It all fits with the story that she told. So it was, it was wonderful to actually find the service records of World War I of, of, of Cleo Lane's father and sort of add a little bit to that story. You've written before on the experience of black um, servicemen in the Second World War. Mm. Do you see many parallels between the two conflicts and how, how they experience them? There certainly are parallels between the First World War motivations, if you like, of the black soldiers and the Second World War, black black men and women that joined up. It was It was, for some of them, about independence. Independence for their islands in the Caribbean, for their West African colonies... Uh, that was at the back of the minds of a lot of, of black colonials. Some did join for glamour. I mean, the, the parallels are very, very similar with the First and Second World War. Some would join for, for the glamour to wear the uniform, to come to the mother country, to have an adventure, with no political views whatsoever. It was just excitement. I mean, when you're living in a colony and the white man is oppressing you, why not go to the mother country and join the army or the navy or, or, or even the air force because we had we had the um, beginnings of the Royal Air Force in the First World War. But others joined for political reasons, which was independence, decolonisation. But that came so much later, after the Second World War. There was a real fight and a real struggle for that to happen. But, but it, 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 there is this impression that some people have that the black men who joined the armed services in the First World War did it passively and were led by the hand by the white colonials. That isn't true. Some came for adventure, some came for political reasons. They did have a political reason. In fact, Marcus Garvey is on record in 1914 as saying, join up. He encouraged men in, in the Caribbean to join up because he was in Jamaica then. And 
was encouraging men to join up. He said, because then we've got, we can prove that we're as good as the white man and then we can prove that we are capable of running our own countries. And you, you mentioned before that how there was, they experienced racism from, say, the officer class or the higher echelons of the British Armed Forces. And was there actually any bars to them doing certain things? Was there any, was there any kind of official segregation or was it more unofficial but existed? No, I, I, I think there was official rules and regulations about what a black soldier could and could not do. What I, I was aware of before I wrote the book was that black men were not allowed to have... Black soldiers, for example, were not allowed to have guns because it was feared that they would turn around and shoot their white comrades and or it, or it would empower them to shoot colonials when after the war when they go back to the islands. It, but then when you do the research, you, you just, you, Walter Tull was given a gun and so were some members of the British West Indies Regiment. But by and large, what black soldiers were expected to do, and this is the case, they were there to uh, service the white soldiers in the sense that they were there on the front line to stack shells, do shell stacking and those kinds of jobs. Well, then I discovered that, that actually shell stacking was an extremely dangerous and 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 frightening job because you're on the front line, the Germans are shelling you in, and... And you're stuck in shells, and it, it, it and it traumatised a lot of men, including um, Herbert Morris, who, who sadly was so traumatised that he uh, absconded, and was court-martialed and shot at dawn. He was pardoned in 2006 with all the other soldiers that were pardoned, uh, but it was a it's a very sad story. A Jamaican lad, age 16, could you imagine? And when I gave a talk recently to some uh, boys in uh, black boys in a youth centre near where I live aged 8 to 14, I said to them, he was only two years older than the oldest one here. And they were really moved by that story. And then back on the home front, what did the First World War mean for the black community that, that didn't go to war, for the people that weren't fighting? Well, on the home front, although, again, there's very little research and evidence, hard evidence, I just assumed that black women in the seaports were doing what other women were doing, working in munitions factories. There is evidence of some black and mixed-race women in Liverpool, where some research by a wonderful historian called Ray Costello has unearthed a lot about the black Liverpool community, which goes right back into the 1800s, um, that were working in war factories. And I, when I, again, when I give talks to children... I just assumed that my ado- adopted Aunt Esther, who was born in 1912 and was at school during the First World War, so it's roughly the sort of age of the children I talked to in primary schools, would have been doing what other girls were doing, which is being encouraged to, to, to wrap bandages, to knit socks and balaclavas. Uh, children from all backgrounds would have been ex- would have been joining in the, the um, parades, waving the Union Jack when the soldiers go off to march. So I just assumed that is what a little black girl like my Aunt Esther would have been doing in London in the First World War, because why shouldn't she? I kind of take it from that point of view. I don't think black people would have been excluded if they'd wanted to do war work on the home front, they would have done it. And certainly from the evidence I found in the Second World War, that is true. 
So I assume it's true of the First World War. It's just that the community would have been much smaller, so it's harder to find the evidence. And what would you like to see done to help make this side of the First World War more well-known? What I would like to see done is I'd love to find a way of bringing schools to my book or bringing my book to the schools because I think the book should be acknowledged in, if not the school curriculum, then certainly by history teachers up and down the country. But there's there's so much more needs to be done in order to address black British history, and particularly this story during this period of, of, of the centenary, uh, to get that, that information out there into the community, but particularly with young people, because young black people in this country should not just be taught about the African-Americans. I think it's damaging psychologically if they keep being told in schools that Dr Martin Luther King, as inspiring and important a figure as he is, is, is more important than some of the black British um, figures. They're, they're all, there should be equality. There should be a way of, 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 of addressing that. And I, I haven't quite worked that out, but at least the book exists and that, that, that's a starting point. That was Stephen Bourne. Black Poppies, Britain's Black Community and the Great War is out now, published by the History Press. And just before we go, I'd like to read out a couple of messages that have come in from readers to the podcast at historyextra.com email address. Firstly, here is Anne Lees from New Zealand. Anne writes, Just a note to you to let your authors who are interviewed on the podcast know that it is well worth speaking to you. I have just ordered five books after listening to a podcast. In one author's case, he was such a brilliant communicator that I have ordered his new one and two older books. I absolutely look forward to the magazine arriving and read all of it thoroughly. But although reviews are wonderful, and I use them, they don't seem to have quite the power to enthuse you the same way that listening to the author talking about his or her book does. Thanks for that, Anne. Also getting in touch was Cam, who lives in Singapore. Cam says, I love your podcast. It has been truly inspirational and part of my weekend unwind routine as I tidy around the house, get extra work done and attend to my cats. More power to you and I wish you would feature stories on British, Spanish and Dutch colonisation in Asia. That would be most interesting. Well, thank you for your message, Cam, and I'm sure that we will cover these topics at some point in the future. Well, that is pretty much it for this week, but do join us next time when we'll be talking about the Crusades, among other things. Thanks for listening to this History Extra podcast, which was produced by Jack Fletcher. Do let us know what you think about this episode by emailing podcast at historyextra.com and we might read out your messages in future episodes. Alternatively, why not keep in touch via Twitter or Facebook? where you'll find us at History Extra. For more great history content, don't forget to visit our website, historyextra.com, where you will find history quizzes, galleries, articles and more. Plus, it's where you can download every single previous episode of this podcast. <laughs>